if we do a reasonable job here today, what do you think our listeners will get get from this? I want them to take job? away the idea that improv is a good idea and they should take an improv course, that the improv skills about listening and working with uncertainty are useful, as well as when they might need something structured and organised, when they need to prepare, when they need to know what's coming. And so with that combo, they will be absolutely unbeatable. Hello. Our guest today is Neil Malarkey, comedy legend, co-founder of London's Comedy Store Players and a force for good in the business world. Neil has distilled 30 years of improv comedy, creativity and relationship building into his new book, In the Moment, for anyone wanting to create better results at work. I'm Robert Diggings and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the joys and perils of human collaboration. If you're a leader, a manager, an HR professional, a coach, consultant or trainer, I'm confident you'll find real value here as the series unfolds. In this conversation, Neil explains why we need to be both like Newton and Darwin, how we've made creativity into something big and frightening when it should be small and cuddly, and why people aren't really the most important asset of an organisation. In fact, our conversation is packed with great ideas that you can use straight away. So, improv comedy, a group of comedians standing on a stage with no script, little planning, and certainly no idea about what's going to happen next. The very idea terrifies most of us. So how could it possibly be a good thing in business? I began our conversation by asking Neil this very question. Can improv comedy really enhance teamwork? Definitely. Improv is teamwork. And also improv, uh, this form of theatre where the audience gives suggestions and we make it up as we go along, is actually not always comedy, not always funny. The rules are about, I listen to what you're saying, I treat what you say as an offer. So I work with corporates using improv skills, which are all about listening, working with what the other person gives you, coping with ambiguity and uncertainty. I don't know what she's thinking. She doesn't know what I'm thinking. But if we can work together, collaborate, then the outcome will be better than if we worked as individuals. So improv, the first rule is listen. What's she saying? What's he giving you? Treat it as an offer, a gift upon which to build. So our Ethos is kind of yes and. Yes, I hear what you say and I build on that. And what is the the whole philosophy that enables you as a group of six people to do that? Because it can't just be about saying yes and and building on what the last person said. <laughs> I, I imagine it's got many elements to it. That's the main one, actually. It's surprising. We do a show which is a bit like Whose Line Is it Anyway. It's called Short Form. So short sketches where you ask the audience for emotions or film styles, different things. And so there's about eight exercises, games we do throughout the evening. There are others who do long form, one show, one story, Jane Austen or a musical, whatever. But the ethos remains yes and. Whatever you said, i got to build on that. There's stuff underneath it. And one of my chapters is called storytelling because the audience wants to see a bit of story. They don't just want gags. After a while, they're looking. And there's the story A that we're presenting. Man meets woman, um, <laughs> prince finds dragon, whatever, treasure is to be found. So we're, we're kind of creating stories. 
And actually, there's also the story of the six of us, how we get on. And there's lots of fun of something happening in one scene. You might bring it back later. But the story is important. So that's why I've learned really over the years that story is a really powerful thing in business. And there's the stories we can tell of the past, but also using the improv thing of when I'm dealing with a client, when I'm dealing with a colleague, as a leader, can I create, co-create, tell the story of where we are? That makes sense for me. Oh, this is why we're here. And the story of the future. So you've got levels of stories, stories about how we got here, stories of understanding why, what we need to do next and stories of where we could be. So let's go back to your comedy roots with the Comedy Store Players, which you founded with Mike Myers in the 80s. Before that, you were at Cambridge. And what I love about your story about going to Cambridge is, if I've understood correctly, you you chose to go to Cambridge, not because of the world-class education that was on offer, but because you wanted to be in the footlights. That's right, because of John Cleese and Monty Python and Peter Cook. I didn't tell my parents, though, so I studied economics for one year and then two years of social and political science. And then I was president of the Footlights and we got our equity cards, which was a thing you needed in the 80s, toured around Australia. And then I was doing a, a show at the at the gate there at Notting Hill above a pub. And there was a bloke selling tickets for us. And his name was Mike Myers. And we got talking and we did a double act. And he told me about improv. And we formed the Comedy Store Players with Paul Merton and Kit Hollaback and Dave Cohen. Improv wasn't a thing. Still, people don't really know what it is. You know, they think it's stand-up. No, no, stand-up comedy is one person generally, and she or he stands on stage, says stuff they've prepared, and they'll do another time, many times, perhaps around the country. Uh, They might ad-lib once in a while, but improv is you're actually creating theatre. There's six people in the Comedy Store players. You're asking the audience for suggestions, and you're creating little moments of theatre, little scenes, vignettes, and songs even. The idea of standing on a stage with no script terrifies a lot of us because it feels like uh, we're exposed and it could easily go horribly wrong. Well, this is the thing. Horribly wrong is subjective. Often, if you come and see the Comedy Store players on a Sunday, you'll see things going, quotes, horribly wrong. Somebody mishears, says the wrong thing, says something you didn't mean to say. And that, that is often a creative breakthrough. And so often creativity comes from a non-linear place. Somewhere, if you just iterate the process you're doing now, you'll just get a slightly better version of what you have now. So improv is a left brain way of enhancing right brain creativity. We have structures. Listen, say yes, build on the other person, find the story. Why are these characters meeting today? Who are they? What are they doing? Where are they? These are the rules, if you like. So the ethos of improv about being open to your idea and you being open to my idea, follow the follower, is directly applicable to conversations in organisations, between clients and colleagues, in selling, in negotiation. Are there limits, though, to where uh, the idea of comedy improv and the way a comedy improv troupe like the Comedy Store Players functions, are there limits to how that can be applied in, a say, a boardroom situation where maybe big decisions are being made that affect thousands of people's lives or um, lots of money is at stake? Well, I'm not sure I'd say limits. I would say they can be used moment by moment. There are times when you need something else. So you do need to have a plan. You do need to be able to, at the very least, a presentation. <laughs> know how long it's going to last, rehearse it. 
I often point out to people the difference between winging it and improv. Winging it is from the wings. You know, in the theatre, somebody's in the wings and they don't know their lines. There is a script. There's only one version of reality and they're failing to remember it. And they're spending their time panicking, can't think of anything to say all over the place, going to the wings saying, what's the line? What's the line? What's the line? And that's different from improv where you say, this is a moment we're going to open up the possibilities and see where we get to. Now, I would say in any organisation, there's moments when you need to be thinking of uh, what's the plan? What do we need to stick to? And, oh, here's a moment of opening up possibilities. Woodrow Wilson, US president, the only one with a PhD in political science, he said people make the mistake of thinking that government is accountable to Newton rather than to Darwin. Now, Robert, you're looking very excited by this, but I think any human organisation has a bit of Newton, i.e. mechanics, F equals MA, laws of motion, press a lever here, out comes the sausage the other end. <laughs> so sometimes you need to be like that, machine, so your, your meeting should run to time, you should have an agenda, you should have budgets, etc. And actually, this is where I took issue with limits. The comedy store players, we perform every Sunday, 7.30 till 9.30. We know who's on, we know which games we're going to play. The comedy store has organised insurance, security, drinks, food, sold tickets, all of which is Newtonian, organised, you know, mechanistic, so that we can then be fully Darwinian, adaptation, evolve in the moment. And I think at any moment in the boardroom, you want conversations to open up. And then at some point, the boss has got to say, or whoever has got to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. No more discussion. But then once you try it out, keep looking, has that worked? Should we stick with a strategy that isn't working? No. Should we have no strategy at all? And No. So this general thing of Eisenhower said, for example, a plan will always be dead when you hit the enemy, but that doesn't mean you don't do planning all the time. And that dynamic is confusing to some people. They say to me, when things go wrong, oh, let's improvise. And I'm saying, let's improvise so that things go right. So spotting opportunities. So I've got a whole chapter on serendipity, for example. But is improv the answer to everything? No, it's the answer on some occasions. If we all could have a little bit more improv ethos about listening and being open to possibility, we'd do better. But I would say none of the comedy store players, myself definitely included, should ever be the CEO of any organisation because we don't do the other thing you need, which I notice people don't have. Often they're not organised. They don't have structure. They don't have a sense of where is this going. So is your work and what you're proposing in, in your new book in the moment about recalibrating that for business? The fact that you say that none of us should really run a company or be a CEO might suggest that you're trying to add something to the existing way of working. Is, is that fair? Absolutely. Or? Yeah. Frankly, listener, you won't get as far if you're just good at technical things. If you can use this improv thing, which is on the one hand, personal, interpersonal, rapport, how do I have better conversations? Oh, they're nice. They listen to me oh, we had a little bit of a laugh together. That's powerful. But then the broader sense of, oh, the world is changing. Things don't go to plan. Oh, what do I do? Do I panic or do I spot opportunity? Hence my chapter on serendipity. Improv is about spotting opportunity as well as, oops, things haven't got to plan. How do we pick it up? So what I'm saying is all the people who are good at their job, their abilities will only get them so far. Technical abilities will only get you so far. If you can use this, a non-linear, co-creative ethos, this will help a lot. And so, as I say in my book, the kind of spectres hanging over us are ro robots and remote. 
<laughs> How much will ChatGPT be eating our lunch? Quite a lot, actually. Possibly knowledge workers more than we expected. On the other hand, at the moment, ChatGPT seems to be able to collate existing understanding and knowledge. I don't know if we went on a first date with ChatGPT how much fun we'd have. A job interview. That kind of stuff that's very human. And so improv will help you with those in the moment. Oh, I don't know what to say here. How do I pick up this networking conversation? How do I make this negotiation work? How do I lead this person in a coaching way where she's quite different from how I am, but I want to bring out the best of her rather than make her try and be like me? On the other hand, remote as well. So we feel it's in person. It's not as much fun. But if you use some improv techniques to have a bit more fun, to really listen, even simple things like the idea in improv is to, is to think of what somebody says as an offer. And I say, I broaden that in terms of business. An offer could be, what's the market saying to us? What's technology? What's regulation? Don't say, oh, I wish it, I wish it wasn't there. Oh, I can't think of anything rather than what we're doing now. You go, oh, there's an opportunity there. Sometimes the restriction can be a liberation and a creative input. On the other hand, the offer, when I'm doing Zoom or Teams, I look at what's in the background and there's something behind them. There's a picture. There's sometimes a pet. Some, and I, I use that to start the conversation. I even say, go and get an object and that delights you. And they talk about it. So you use that as an offer. So it's a catalyst. It's a hook. It's a cue. It's an opening to begin something rather than just sticking to, hey, let's talk about the task. So there's the, uh, the improv ethos has many applications. So I think be on top of what you do, whatever it is. For example, a lawyer said to me, she'd been a lawyer 15 years. And she said, sometimes I realize now it's not the quality of the advice I give. It's the quality of the relationship I have. And so the, 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 the improv comedy ethos is, is very relational. And there's a lovely, uh, in fact, I think it's a superb uh, quote in your book. One of the things that, in fact, I'm left with from reading it is around this idea that people are the most important asset of a business. And you go, really? Um, <laughs> isn't it people's relationships that are the most important thing, uh, the most important asset that the business has? So say a little bit more about what you see in corporates around that quality of relationship and your passion for improving that. Yeah, because people say, people are our greatest asset. What does that mean? What, what does it actually mean? And they, and they leave. You know, I see it all the time. People leave. What do they take with them? They take relationships and, and their knowledge. So it's how much is compliance talking to sales? <laughs> Any org, you know, org structure, those lovely mythical pictures of boxes, they don't show what really goes on, which is she's talking to him. She bumps into him. The receptionist is a font of wisdom, of relational uh, networking. <laughs> How often people have said to me, because I did this launch the other day, uh, we called it laughter at work. I wanted to call it laugh at work. And people emailing say, I can't come, but I can tell you that I had this job, my highest paid job. I lasted nine months because we didn't laugh. And so it's, are we able to have the conversation? So the word relational sounds a bit touchy-feely, doesn't it? But your whole thing is called highly relational. I remember coming across the word relational at uh, Ashridge Business School. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's how we talk to each other, how much we trust each other, how much we're prepared to go outside the bounds of what's been done. We don't have to like each other, actually. <laughs> Somebody said trust beats like. But 
how much am I telling you of what I'm doing? And even things like I work with a, med a global media company, the law department. And they said, people come to us uh, on a Friday afternoon saying, we're going to launch on Monday. And they say, well, actually, yes, but you can't do this, you can't do that. So they said, can you talk to us earlier, way earlier in the process? And we'll say, yes, and this is what you could do. When there's, it's still gestating, the law department can be creative. And ask anybody in compliance, they don't want to be baddies. HR, they don't want to be telling you off. How do we make those conversations productive that brings the best of the individual and of the team? And, and you've covered, in that last answer, you've covered two or touched on two of the main chapters of your book, one on creativity and the other on this interesting and somewhat elusive idea of collaboration. And both seem to be, for both to happen, there needs to be a high quality of relationship. So let's explore those one at, one at a time. The collaboration thing, you, you, you spend a bit of time trying to define it. What, what, what conclusion have you come to around what collaboration is at work and what are the th key things that really need to be paid attention to? Well, I'm often called into collaboration. Yes, and I work with you, you work with me, we're co-creating and both of us are writing the story, but neither of us claims sole responsibility. However, being the person I am, that I want to be doing the best for my client, I've looked into when is collaboration not a good idea? How can a leader, because my workshops tend to be teaching people to collaborate, but how does a leader enhance collaboration? How does she or he make this a collaborative environment? So collaborative to me means work together, you know, co-labor. That's hard to define because actually we know there are times when it's best to go off on your own and do something. I want to do this spreadsheet. I want to write this proposal. And I found some research that there's different types of collaboration. You know, we just do it all together. So brainstorming, brainstorming doesn't work for, for many people and many moments. Somebody loud, crazy ideas, quiet person going, well, that's never going to happen. Not a great idea. On the other hand, if I go away and have a few thoughts, bit stuck, come back, talk to everyone. Oh, that's interesting. Air some possibilities. Then I go back and do it on my own that co-collaboration is quite good. So if we're all collaborating all the time, it may not be great. If we're all lone wolves, it may not be great. So a nice combo is good. I also found a really good one, which is different types of collaboration. There's a book called Collaborative Overload. And of course, collaboration isn't just me helping you out, sitting next to you, spending time and energy. It could be just you ask me a question, I give you the answer. It could be you talking through the problem and I share with you somebody I know because I've talked to everybody. Isn't it great? I know she can help. Oh, he's a great one at that. And that doesn't cost me as much. I'm, uh, although, you know, in sales, <laughs> people will tell you that you don't share your network, but actually you should. So it's interesting that there's what's called the personal collaboration, which is I sit down, spend my energy and my time with you. Women spend to, tend to do more. You know, men, here's the answer, off you go. Ask him, do with that. And that's a shame. It, um, but on the other hand, there are certain people who are brilliant at collaboration and something like three to 5%, I don't know, I, it's in the book, so if I'm wrong, shoot me, uh, <laughs> create 30 to 50% of the collaborative value add, if you like. And there are certain people who do no collaboration at all. On the other hand, those great collaborators, the go-to good girls and guys, get overloaded sometimes. No good turn goes unpunished. So what I say is basically to people, yes, ask for help, but equally offer help. And sometimes the help may be just, can I listen to you? I'm not, I may not give you the answer, 
but I'm going to listen. I even thought about having a chief collaboration officer who helps collaboration. Their job is to make that happen and also stop it if it's not suitable. So uh, the, one of the things I would say is, first of all, decide, is this a collaborative moment? Actually, should I just go and do it on my own or, or get her to do it on her own? And then what's the best way to collaborate? Is it all together in the same room metaphorically or physically? No, is it come and go intermittent collaboration? And then the dark side of collaboration, I said, which is actually noticing that the, the unsung heroes, the um, collaboration could be actually, let's collaborate. Mm, you take this off my in-tray. <laughs> you do all the work. So, so the word collaboration, I would say, is misused sometimes because under that veil can be criticizing others. They're not very collaborative, uh, meaning they ask the question as to why this is being done. Others, all they do is collaborate. That's their job. <laughs> and it's not always understood. Their job is to kind of be the glue that keeps everyone together. And they are vital and not always recognized. So if you're in charge of a team, you want them to collaborate a bit more, I would say, uh, make it clear, you know, this is the project, this is the budget, this is the time. Cast it well, different personalities, certain guide rails, this is what it's about, this is where you don't need to go. Check in regularly, but not check up too much. And role model the give and take you want of collaboration. Admit defeat, sometimes admit failure. Sometimes when there's a stuck moment, somebody steps in. So role model that, allowing for risk, allowing for mistakes. People watch what you do as a leader more than they listen to what you say. Is there anything to say about the, the dark side of collaboration and how it happens uh, in, the, in the improv world? Or, do, or is that not relevant? Totally relevant. Uh, in my book, I've got some toolboxes. One of the lessons from improv is everyone has the chance to talk. You take short turns. I say a few lines, you say a few lines. Nobody's running the whole thing. In fact, Del Close, one of the gurus of improv, said, don't try and do the whole thing on your own. Bring a brick and together we'll build a cathedral. I don't interrupt you. Everyone has a contribution to make, equally valued. There's a common goal. With us, it tends to be the story. How does the story unfold? And one of the critiques of brainstorming is everyone's got their own agenda. She's going that way. He's going this way. Um, and we're just shouting out lots of different ideas. So we are trying to tell one story together. I don't mind saying stuff I, that may be a bit out there, a bit off. So, for example, I've talked about Yes And as the improv ethos. Pixar movies, who, Toy Story and many other movies, they call it plussing. Plussing is you can't critique an idea unless you've got a constructive way of moving it forward. So it doesn't have that sense of if you say an idea isn't quite right or you want to change it, the person whose idea it was feels personally attacked. We're trying to solve, this is the idea, we're solving that rather than I'm attacking you. And I also want to notice to people to think about their collaborative style. Are you someone who reflects in a meeting, comes back later with a great idea? Are you somebody who just shouts out lots of ideas in the meeting and that may be fine because one of those could stick and somebody else could pick it up and run with it? So just notice that everyone has got a slightly different style. So many people come to me and say, I've got great ideas. Or somebody will say, the junior people, the middle people are good in meetings with me. And then we put them in the regional executive and they clam up a bit. Or there's lots of shouting and others are a bit quieter. So think about how you collaborate. Think about what you give to a meeting. Think a bit carefully about, A, how much 
Are you dumping on other people? Actions? Yes, Robert can do that. Versus taking too many actions. Those are the kind of things. So with improv, the, the, the very simple lessons are everyone has a chance to talk. Everyone is equal. And actually, we have that imperceptible moment of, oh, they've got an idea. Let them go with it. Sometimes I'm in a scene and I'm, I'm keeping the plate spinning, as it were. I'm, I'm the st straight man, if you like. And I can start any scene thinking, oh, this is going to be about picnics. Turns out later on there's been a murder. I can let my picnics go. That's fine. I can let that go. So not holding your agenda too lightly uh, would be one of the things I would say. And you know how bird, a murmuration, a flock of birds, there's always one bird at the front, but it's not always the same bird. And it's imperceptible as to how they decide who it's going to be, but they do. And the aerodynamics of a flock is so much better than individuals. It's that kind of shared leadership, flat hierarchy, I would suggest. And that is one of the most impressive things, I think, about improv comedy and how it unfolds and, uh, and how corporates and business teams often struggle with moving the leadership around the group or around the team. Um, is there anything that you can say in the corporate setting to help people do it more like you do it on stage? Yes. Sometimes as a leader, you will be coming up with ideas. Sometimes as a leader, your job is to help others come up with ideas. So it's a little bit like if you think of improv music, there's rhythm, boom, 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 and there's solo. Ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba -da. And is the leader always doing solos? No. Sometimes they're just keeping the rhythm going. To extend the metaphor far too far, sometimes they're just listening to the music. Then they, they sometimes do solos and they sometimes let others do the solo. And that's a really hard thing for leaders. For example, I've got a whole chapter about meetings. Apparently in the first year, of being a leader, you have 29% more meetings than later because you think leading means meetings. I must be seen to be leading and meetings is where that happens. Sometimes it's just imperceptible moments, one-on-ones and a harder in hybrid times. How do I check in without checking up? How do I keep you motivated without you feeling I'm looking over your shoulder? So I think it's a real question for leaders. Uh, we can train you collaborative skills, but can we train you as a leader to be a collaborative leader, to enhance collaboration, as I said, to notice it, to bring it up, maybe to encourage others who aren't so collaborative. What are you frightened of? And there may be uh, all sorts of concerns about what that means, but how do we curate a collaborative environment? And I think that is the challenge now to uh, anybody in a leadership position. And it's not taught in school. I'm not even sure it's taught at business school. I, I teach at London Business School. I call it leadership in the moment. And we'd really, we're trying, you know, how do we curate that atmosphere? Before we move on to some practical tips at the end of our conversation, I'd like to spend a few minutes just talking about creativity and innovation. You've got a great chapter on creativity. Do you think creativity is the problem, is, is what's lacking in um, businesses? Um, is that something that needs more attention? And what can you offer in that space? Well, yes, and is creative. Yes, and X. Yes, and Y. And you can build an idea that you might not have done if you were uh, be thinking in, in your existing paradigm, if you like. What I would suggest, though, to people is creativity is a big word, even bigger than collaboration, <laughs> maybe as big as leadership, which nobody really knows what it is. Creativity sounds something like we lack creativity. It might be like pornography. Isn't that what the judge said? I, don't, I can't describe it, but I know when I see it. For me, creativity can be a great new idea. It can be a fantastic new product, but it can equally 
be something as every day as why do we have meetings that are an hour? Why don't we have them 45 minutes? Could we have the coffee in this room rather than that room? The way we lay out the office. Can we have some flowers in reception? Can we stand up in a Teams meeting? So we're moving about a bit more. So it's one of the things that I think has become a big thing and it should be an everyday thing. It should be, how do we make a creative environment? And that creative environment often is one where we're laughing. We're laughing together. We have an ironic take on certain things. Every day we're, we're happy to, quote, work with the literal and the lateral. So a bit of teasing, a bit of irony, not sarcastic, unpleasant teasing, but just that sense of, oh, we can laugh at our disasters. Oh, we can have our own little in-jokes that means that we have a creative culture within our little group that, that there's a psychological safety so we can push some ideas that, that perhaps wouldn't be uh, allowed in more frustrating environments. And one of the things that comes across in your book for me uh, was around, is, is around this idea of creating structure in which it's possible to do something spontaneous. And I think that, that it's so easy to, to kind of do something that's either very chaotic and kind of just has no structure, or we get into a structure and then we structure everything and there's no space for something original or um, un- that hasn't been thought of before. So you're, you're kind of saying we need a container in which to be spontaneous. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm almost saying the structure is relational. Now, we could. there are things like let's have a meeting on a Tuesday for 15 minutes where we just talk about stuff or we have donuts. That's fine. That's a structure, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Another structure is where people sit. On the other hand, you might have a structure. Well, let's be creative on a Monday morning or let's have the Monday morning meeting. And, uh, you know, agile software development, they have a stand-up meeting 15 minutes every morning. Great. Stand up, only 15 minutes go away, think about ideas, uh, share what hasn't gone well. So I would say there is, you have to have some structure, but is the structure enhancing or restricting? And in a way, the structures might have to develop. What was good last year isn't for this. Because she's left or I'm different from who I am, maybe not that one anymore. That was great in that moment. Um, with Sport, great sports people and formations and coaches, and then they move on and change and things have to adapt there, thereby. Fantastic. So if somebody listening to this wants to actually uh, take action and do something today, tomorrow, that's different, that would bring to life some of the ideas that you've written about in, in the moment and that we've talked about today, what would you suggest? Where to start with this process of creating structure and then being spontaneous and creative within it? <laughs> Oh, golly, that's quite a lot, isn't it? I would say, first of all, as an individual, try taking an improv class. You can do them on Zoom and Teams these days. It's, it's, I have not met a single person who's taken a class who has not said it's been radically life-changing. Enhance their confidence, their joie de vivre, and their ability to do their job better. On the other hand, if you, uh, you know, that's a longer term thing, but just try a few moments at, at the beginning of a meeting, the end of a meeting, just to, to say, how is everyone? get the relations going. Go in early to a Teams meeting and say, I'll be there early if anyone wants to chat. I think that in some ways you've got to be a a bit like appreciative inquiry, which is what's working. This is where you ask what's working. Let's do more of that. Rather than say, I've got a brand new idea that I must do. 
Uh, what's working? Let's do more of that. And quite often people say the thing that worked was when we did a bit of CSR, a bit of corporate social responsibility. We did a charity day and we had such fun. We went outside the normal bounds of structure. We worked across teams and it was okay. And so I would say, instead of trying to impose a whole new idea and suddenly, uh, you know, arrive with a red nose and uh, be a clown and say, I'm doing improv comedy now, be a bit yourself. First of all, ask yourself, what do I find funny? When do we laugh in the team? Can we find more moments of that? Because I do you do 10,000 steps a day. Robert, do you eat your five I, a day? I, I don't really track my but steps. But now in organisations, they do, don't they? Yeah, and it, there's posters everywhere. Mm. Does anyone do a laughter audit? How much of our team laughed together? Now, they might be laughing around the back, the smoker's corner or in the coffee shop over the road, laughing at the boss or the new expenses system. <laughs> but can we bring that in-house? That shared sense of, oh, we're in this together through thick and thin. So find the moments of laughter, do more of those. Even stuff as boring as, not as boring, as seemingly deadpan as, do we have to have this meeting at that time in this room? Could we have it outdoors? Could we have it in Starbucks? It's lovely. You're all, it's an idea that I have heard before, but you're articulating it so so sweetly. It's almost about, um, you know, if you don't know what to change, change anything. Change, you know, if you have tea every morning at half past seven, try having coffee at quarter to eight. Uh, if you walk to work this route, go that way. If you always yeah. sit in the same seats, sit somewhere else. So yeah. it's possible to change things up and disrupt the, yeah. the patterns that people are in. And through that, there can be new ideas. Because I think you can't suddenly change your personality and uh, as an individual or as, individual or as a team, but things like stop, get off if in the tube, get off one stop early, look up. Oh, there are chimneys. A friend of mine did that and she's now become a chimney expert. <laughs> oh, what's happening there? Go to a different route. And I think change something, see what happens. And if you're a leader, maybe somebody else facilitate the meeting. That's I think it's it rather than sort of wholesale change everything, we must be more creative. Let's just there's no lack of creativity in teams, but they may just be sniff, you know, sniggering behind your back creativity uh, rather than adding to what is of value in the organisation. Neil, it's a um, total pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming in today. Um, Neil's book, In the Moment, is out in paperback, published by Kogan Page. Where can people get um, more information about what you're doing and, and the kind of uh, workshops that you run or well, coming along to the comedy store? My website, neilmalarkey.com. Hopefully you can spell that. Uh, that'll be in some sort of notes somewhere. But malarkey, think of the word mull, mull things over, lark, rise with a lark, have a bit of a lark, and the key to unlocking your potential. Malarkey, neilmalarkey.com. So the comedy store players, comedystoreplayers.com, every Sunday, come and see... And you, you'll think, oh, what's this got to do with business? But then when you've done a workshop, you'll think, oh, yes, I can see they're doing yes and. They are literally co-creating. They're navigating a journey together where they're giving and taking the lead. They're open to ideas. They're vulnerable, but there's eminent trust. That was Neil Malarkey. Thank you, Neil. Great Thank you. See you. The yes anding Neil Malarkey. Thanks to him for his time today. Neil's book, In the Moment, is out now in paperback, published by Kogan Page. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. Give us a like, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. Today's studio manager at VoxPod is Alex Bennett. Our researcher is Ella Halsell. And the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. 
Thanks for listening and goodbye.